It doesn't take long to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ before we begin to hunger for the home that we are destined to be in. The sad reality is that far too often that we feel too much at home here. If there's a hunger in your heart for another home, then chances are that you know Jesus Christ. You're longing for the place that He has promised for you to be eternally by His side in a home not like this one, not a broken home, not a home that has heartache and tears and disease and hardship and even sin, but a home eternally. The psalmist says at the end of Psalm 23, after he's walked in the, in the pastures and by the still waters and through the valley of the shadow of death, that he longs to be at the dwelling place of God forever. This is the yearning of every heart that knows Jesus Christ. This morning our message revolves around the topic of home. And the title of the message this morning is, Whoever Rules the Heart Rules the Home. Whoever Rules the Heart Rules the Home. We'll be looking at several different passages, many different passages in Proverbs this morning, but I invite you to turn with me in the first chapter of Proverbs in chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, as the prologue to the remaining part of the book, sounds like this in Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head. And pendants for your neck. Would you pray with me? Father of our hearts and Father of our home. We come before you as sons this morning. We want to listen. We know you're speaking. And we know you're not far away. While home Our eternal home seems distant. You're here. Thank you, Lord. So now we will still ourselves and hear your voice. And may the Spirit be loud in his whisper, be comforting in his counsel, be courageous in his conviction of our hearts this morning. Let your word run into our hearts this morning. Pour in grace and truth and mercy. We'll be faithful to listen and to obey. In Jesus' power and in Jesus' name, amen. The first seven Proverbs are written specifically from a father to a son. That's the setting. Of all the settings God could have chosen to impart wisdom for life to us, God chose the context of the home and the familial relationship. That's because if you don't understand Proverbs as love, all you will see in Proverbs is law. Wisdom is imparted through the relationship that God has with his children. So it's in this context of the heavenly home of the children of God that we learn how to live. And that's entirely fitting and appropriate. You see, Proverbs begins by 
the hearing of the voices of the, both the king and the queen in verses 8 and 9. Listen to your father and listen to your mother. What follows is their inspired wisdom for us. As broken as the home was of Solomon, we still find that God was speaking wisdom into his home. One could argue that with a thousand women in Solomon's harem in his palace, that there could not have been a more dysfunctional home in all of history. And there were severe consequences for all of it. So it's intriguing for us as the readers to know that this is where the word of wisdom is being taught from. It's being imparted to us from the home of Solomon. But I think while it's worth noting the brokenness of Solomon's home, there is a very significant point worth noting in all of it. Wisdom in Proverbs isn't coming to us from a throne. Wisdom in Proverbs isn't coming to us from a library. The wisdom of Proverbs isn't coming to us in the sterility of a classroom, in the academia setting, or really anywhere else. The wisdom of Proverbs is coming to us in related, is related to us in the setting of a home. So any of, if any, there is any other lesson for us to take away from this, I submit to you that the Lord is making it clear to us that it is living in the fear of the Lord isn't a matter merely for the public square or for the marketplace or for the job site and office or for dinner out with friends or even for the church setting. But living in the fear of the Lord begins in your home. In my home. It is to be authentic and genuine. God's wisdom, and God has wisdom, literally for right where you live. The home is important to God. It's important, firstly, because we were made to live in a home. Now, I'm not talking about the brick and mortar house that you and I have. I'm talking about the home. God created each one of us out of the extension of His desire for us to abide with Him, to be at home with Him. We need to understand, firstly, that home is something that God came up with. I don't have a good definition for the home. You could seek out definitions for home all over the place. But I'm going to take a stab at giving us a definition of the home and hope that you would agree to some level of the truth that this is a biblical definition, or at least part of a biblical definition and express this way. I believe that home is not the place or the position, firstly, of any person where they feel safe and provided for, secure and at ease. Not firstly. I believe that firstly, the home is where we experience the greatest love and acceptance. And by where biblically we can narrow that down, home, not as a place, but as a person. You see, there is no place where the child of God will experience a greater love than the love that God has for them. Home is a who before it is a where. So the definition for home that I submit to you as children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and as the church of God, the definition of home that I submit to you this morning is God with us. If we take that definition and understand the guidance that God gives into the home to men, women, boys, and girls, 
husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, grandparents. We can find hope and help to bring grace into our homes if that's the definition of our home. Since the world began, homes have been a wreck. And since the time of your birth, you have never lived in a perfect home. Whether you live alone or your house is full, God has grace for you so that you can glorify him in your home because home is God with us. I argue that this is the original definition of the home. Adam and Eve are not said to have made a house out of trees or stones, but are shown to us in Genesis 2 as having a perfectly content spirit with each other because their relationship with God was foundational to their relationship with one another. Once their relationship with God became fractured, then their relationship with one another became broken as well. So from the very beginning, we see that men and women can be perfectly happy if their relationship and walk with the Lord is righteous. God is the one who established our homes, where you live and where I live, and, and he placed us in it. And I want to take the, a passage from Acts chapter 17 to, uh, to make that the foundation. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he testifies of the sovereignty of God and especially his desire that men be saved by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says, And he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God is the one who has made your home. He has established your dwelling place. Yes, the boundaries of the nations, but even the micro-kingdoms of our lives. The family holds the central place in our society, whether our modern culture admits it, wants to redefine it, or not. The family occupies three of the Ten Commandments centralizing it within the obedience of a covenant relationship with God. At Sinai, God engraved commands to husbands and to wives and to children into his Decalogue. Critical, then, to the covenant relationship with God is a righteous relationship within the home. Whether married or unmarried, these commandments cross over lines and have to do with all of us. We are all men, we are all women, we are all sons, and we are all daughters. And largely, by created order, the family is the central part of God's plan for living in a righteous context daily. Whoever rules the heart rules the home. Righteous relationships are fruit of fearing God. And this morning we're going to be looking at two types of righteous relationships. And that is that there's an obedience as sons and there's loving as family. We won't be able to handle all of the context and really all of the applications throughout the book of Proverbs in, in its relationship to how the home is to operate. So this morning we'll just narrow in on, on a, few, a few centralized principles on how to live in the fear of God in the context of our homes. But first of all, we recognize that we must be obedient as sons. 
The book of Proverbs puts forward to us this truth, that all of us are sons in the book of Proverbs. In the Hebrew, there's two words for the word son. There's bar, we're familiar with bar, like Simon bar Jonah. There's also this, the word, uh, the Hebrew word ben, almost like Benjamin. So bar and ben. Bar is the word that we naturally, we think of that familial relationship. It is the, the word that we would use for like offspring or progeny. It does indicate a, a gender specific um, part of, of, the, of humanity, but it is, it is just naturally the idea of the common idea of son. But, but Ben has a little bit more to it. That it lays some weight on the shoulders of this offspring of the parents, specifically a male offspring. You see, Bar means, I'm sorry, um, Ben means builder. And throughout the book of Proverbs, I haven't done a, a centralized study on this to, to recognize all the dividing parts of this, but it it's almost seems that there might be an interchangeableness between the Hebrew words used Ben and Bar, but it would be worth someone's study to find out the specific application of when Bar is used compared to Ben. But Ben is the idea of the builder. In the familial context, it wouldn't be just the, the builder of, of, of a house or the builder of a bridge or the builder of a wall. It would be the builder of the family, the dependence upon the parents that this son would, would launch out from their home and, and become the builder, the continuation of something that had begun to be built by them, to continue to build the family, to continue to build the family name, to continue on what had been already been building and so this word son, ben, and bar are used over 50 times in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 11.29, we recognize that there is the responsibility, especially of the ben, the builder title. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. There's a warning given to the one who builds his house that he would not trouble his household. And so Ben is the word for build. By choosing to use this word, firstly, Solomon, among the other authors of the Proverbs, is setting the tone that there ought to be a lasting legacy of fearing the Lord in every family. Notwithstanding the gender-specific term of son, each person is considered a son, as we read through this Proverbs, when we read of his wisdom written to his son in particular. We are all sons, even if some of us are daughters among us as sisters, as we have sisters in Christ in here this morning. We are all sons, even if some of us are daughters, in the sense that God is building his house. You are Ben's. And his wisdom is out in the open for us all to behold, to believe and behave in, whether we are sons or daughters. But even though we say that we acknowledge that the ancient Hebrew thought here is once again that if anyone is to obey the wisdom of their parents, it should be very first and at the very least begin with the son, we recognize that the son is, yes, even gender specific. It is important. But let's not let the gender specificity dismiss its application to you if you happen to be a daughter here this morning. In this too, we are reminded that we are all sons of God. We are God's offspring. We are Bar. And we are Ben. 
We are builders. So we are tasked with participating in the making of progeny through the Great Commission, making of children of the faith. Then also we are reminded that there is a son who listened to his father's instruction. In fact, Jesus had said that it was his meat. It was his desire to do his father's will. It was what he lived for. It was what he lived on to do his father's will. And this son listened to every point of wisdom poured out from the mouth of his heavenly father and he gave himself to obey in every way. It was this son, Jesus Christ, whom the father begot and gifted to us for the salvation of the world. So we say all this to say that we dare not despise the use of the word son in Proverbs because it is very important for us to the point of its specific application. When you read son in Proverbs, remember we are all sons because as believers in Christ, we are the offspring of God as children in Jesus Christ. And we are offspring and we are builders. And... We are in the Son who, li- who listened to the Father and obeyed every one of his commands. In fact, was pleased to do so and accomplished righteousness. So, to speak, Jesus read Proverbs, listened to the Father, and obeyed and accomplished righteousness. And imparts to you and I, as sons, his track record of righteousness. And then also equips us to obey like he did. And so we are all in the Son, who was the obedient Son in the Proverbs. And we were imparted, not by our own merit, as a matter of fact, totally disqualified by our demerit. We were all granted His righteousness as He obeyed every command. And so, how do we live as sons in the home? How do we live in the home as sons? We recognize, firstly, that that the fear of God is the framework for our lives. Every part of our lives. In Proverbs 14.11, the Bible says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The fear of God is is the framework for, for a godly home. What's the framework for your home? If it hasn't been centralized on the fear of God, likely it's a hundred different things. The fact of the matter is that fearing God isn't something that we stumble on by accident, by our nature. Our homes have to be built intentionally by our fear of the Lord firstly. If our homes are not built upon the fear of the Lord, they are built upon on wood, hay, and stubble. There's nothing else that can replace the foundation for fear of the Lord in our homes. Likely, if if we have found ourselves slack in fearing the Lord, we cannot say that our framework for our home and how we're living our lives is anything substantial or anything God-glorifying. The fear of the Lord is is an intentional act of the will. It's it's a conforming of of the will and a, a bending of the Spirit into honoring and glorifying God above all else. The framework of our home isn't accidentally the fear of God. It is an intentional posture. But we also see that God gives wisdom to the worthy. Who are those who are made worthy? Those who have been made worthy by the, by the blood of the Lamb. You and I as children of the Father are made worthy by Jesus Christ and God happily imparts wisdom to us. In Proverbs 24.3 we find that by wisdom a house is built 
and by understanding it is established. By wisdom a house is built and by understanding it is established. Taking God's imparted truth and and making it real for ourselves. Whether there's anybody else in the home, whether there's children dependent upon our instruction or a spouse to interact with, notwithstanding, no matter who's in the home, a, a home, a house is built by wisdom and by understanding it is made sure. It is made unshakable. It is made pleasing to God. And so wisdom is given to the worthy. But we also notice in Proverbs fifteen seventeen. And in 17.1, that there is a, a note of peace about the home of the righteous. In Proverbs 15.17, the writer says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. In Proverbs 17.1, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. God says He knows the turmoil of your home. And as we would give ourselves into fearing Him and receiving wisdom and understanding from Him, we can have peace in the normal places. How often are we praying for peace in our world and looking over our heads wondering what kind of peace there is with balloons flying over our head every day. But might we also recognize that God is interested in the, in the context of our home. God has peace for normal places, not just for national boundaries. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has peace that can come and enter into your home as you abide with Him? Do you believe that there can be a peace in your heart no matter what is going on? God has peace to give to you who fear the Lord. He has a peace for normal places. Not just the far off places where we see the conflict and it's making headlines. God has peace for private places. It's found in the fear of the Lord. We know that the wise plan their homes. In Proverbs 24, 27 that they prepare, you prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. In this is the admonition to, for us to take an evaluation. This morning, the Spirit of God is calling upon us to, to look at least in three places. Is the fear of God the framework for my home? What's shaping my home? Likely, you can detect some shaping influences of your home by looking at your schedule. Likely you can find out what's shaping the framework of your home by looking at how you spend your money, your time and your money. Likely you can find what's shaping the framework of your home by the kind of people that come in and out and your intention towards them. And all of this the writer of Proverbs says, ready yourself in the field and after that build your house. This, this message this morning is calling upon us to, to step back and just evaluate what, 
what's the framework for my home? And secondly, am I drawing wisdom from God as one who is worthy? Or am I just winging it? Am I just living moment by moment? Am I just kind of going with what feels right or or maybe what has worked in the past? Or maybe trying to correct things that haven't worked in the past? Am I just sort of just making up as I go in my home? Or, or am I taking time to take the wisdom of God and, and lay it as a framework and as wisdom for my home? And thirdly, am I receiving, am I receptive of of the peace that wisdom brings into my home? Do I believe that God has peace in normal places like my home? Am I pursuing the peace of God? There's a warning given to us in several of the Proverbs for those who aren't at home with Christ. In Proverbs 11.29, we, we uh, had already quoted this before, but whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. You bring trouble into your home, consequences far-reaching and far deeper than you could ever gather in. And a fool will be servant to the wise. There's a warning for those who might bring greed into their home, discontentment, always seeking after something that they don't have, a jealousy and envy, a a desire for the accumulation. Proverbs 15.27 says, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. But he who hates bribes will live. Is there a spirit of contentment in your home? Or is there always the striving for something bigger or better? What else can we can we buy? What else if we can just get this one more thing? We bring greed into the home, it'll trouble your household. Trouble upon trouble. In verse uh, chapter seventeen, thirteen, bringing evil into our home. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house, making evil feel at home. Does evil feel at home? In your home? Have we allowed the wickedness of this world to just erode and just start to fade some of the boundaries of God's holiness? Are there things that really are off limits? Or does everything feel at home? In your home? These are warnings. Don't bring trouble into your home. Don't bring discontentment into your home and let it breed. And don't let evil feel at home in your home. Whoever rules the heart rules the home. The description of a righteous home is found to have a blessing from God. Proverbs 14.11 says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. 3.33 says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. In 15.6, the writer of Proverbs says, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, 
but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. In 21.20, he says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And so in the righteous home, there's stability and there's security. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand, according to Proverbs 12.7. But listen to Proverbs 24.15 and 16 as it tells us about stability and security. Proverbs 24, 15 and 16, Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Notice verse 16 is given to us likened or as a continued thought in verse 15. It's true that the righteous fall. And normally, righteous fall firstly in their home. And God has grace for the righteous when they fall in their home. For the righteous fall seven times, but the, the, how you know they're righteous is they rise again. How many times they fall is how many times they rise. There's such a sweet grace in verse 16 for us when we, when we all look at our homes and we say, is there any home like ours is so messed up? There's so much grace and promise given and, and, and example given and pattern given in verse 16. Because the first place I believe that the righteous fall is probably at home. But notice what happens to the one in verse 16 who falls, who does not have a fear of the Lord. The wicked stumble in times of calamity. The idea here is they never rise again. There's a contrast here. They're never, never able to get out of the ditch. They're never able to rise up again because they've never been righteous. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls, we might even say on his own without your help. But he rises again because the condition of his heart is that he had been made righteous from the very beginning. You say, I don't know how many rounds I can go in my home of brokenness. I don't know how many rounds I can bring, I can, I can go with, with people in my home and with the troubles of my home and the cycles of sin that just keep coming round and round in my marriage or even in living alone in the failures that I have. Well, God says it is in the heart of the righteous that he gives grace. God is used to cycles. But we are too. And he gives the grace there. You see, because God's desire 
is to meet us with grace where we are, not, listen, where we should be. God doesn't ask for you to clean up your life and then He's going to give you grace. God doesn't ask you to come to Him with a trouble-free home and then say, now I'm ready for your wisdom. God doesn't wait for you to have a perfect marriage before He blesses it. But when the righteous fall, He raises them up again, even though they fall over and over and over again. And that's what this seven times is meant to indicate to us. It's this idea, this Hebrew idea of the righteous are always falling. And they're always getting up. Praise be to God. Your home is always a wreck and always being redeemed. But the wicked home is not so. The wicked home just continues on the trajectory of destruction and death. Verse number 15, chapter 15, verse 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Why is the word widow here compared to the proud? That is that God is recognizing here that in the home of the widow is a humble abode of one who feels very vulnerable and recognizes their dependence upon God. It is very much in front of them. The opposite of this is that home that says, I have everything I need and I don't need God. And I don't want Him. It's very possible that even a Christian home can live like this. God, I I don't need you. Right now things are okay. Or, you haven't been helping me. And so I'm still not going to rely upon you. Well, that kind of home sees, sees destruction. And God resists that pride. But to the home and to the one who, like a widow, recognizes that unless God has mercy for her, especially in a society where a widow would have needed everybody's help to, to live, when a home has this type of humility before the Lord, whether it's a widow or whether it's a married couple with a six-figure income, seven-figure income, if they will humble themselves before the Lord... God will maintain them, sustain them. So it doesn't matter what's in the bank account. It matters what's in the heart. And so we live as sons in obedience. But the second familial relationship here we recognize is that there is a, a, and also an outworking of this obedient fear of God with one another and we love as family. And we know that throughout the scriptures that God had created men all the way from the very beginning, from really the first or second page in our Bibles. Men have been designed and built for a specific task. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 15, when God created Adam, specifically Adam, in verse number 15 we're given the words of this, the Lord God took the man 
And he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. And this theme, this, this theology of, of, of manhood really continues on through the, the Hebrew thinking and really the theological theme through the book of Proverbs. And when we come to sons and when we come to men and when we come to husbands, we find that God is holding men responsible no matter what role they play, even if you're not married, even if you're a son, if you're single or you're married, that you continue with the same commandment, the same trajectory, the same purpose as what the man was given in Genesis 2.15. And God took the man and he put him in the garden and he told him to work it, to cultivate it, and to keep it. This has been given to, as a task for man even before the fall. And so as we move through Proverbs, as, as men move through their Proverbs, there's many instructions given to men about the eye, about the body, about the mouth, about many things given specifically it seems to men, especially in that gender. But as men and as, as men given by God to this world, we are tasked from the very beginning, no matter what role we play, as cultivators. This perhaps is why even men have take upon the word husband in the married relationship. Re- remember, husband means hus- it's the idea of husbandry. Husbandry. To cultivate life. To, to, to provide all of the groundwork for, to, for life to, to begin and, and to flourish. Not to just exist, but for life to flourish. To flourish even unto the fear of the Lord. And so when the, word, when the name husband is used, when the word husband is used in the scripture, there's a verb form and it's, it means cultivating, that cultivating one. And so men, whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're young or old, whether you're a young man or an older man, maybe even married or not, our task is to identify areas around us and to be used of God to bring life, to bring true life, life that flourishes and abounds like Adam was to do so in the garden. To cultivate the ground, to cultivate what's there, and to be use of God in every way to promote life. This is the role of men. And as you read specifically uh, male-oriented commandments throughout the book of Proverbs, you'll notice that in every part of these commandments is the expectation that when you give of yourself to obeying God in this way, you are cultivating life. You're cultivating it in your workplace. You're cultivating it in your home, whether married or unmarried. You're cultivating it with your friends and the counsel that you keep, the companions that you have. You're cultivating life. He even, specifically, the husband, seeks to husband, verb form, husband, his wife, And we find that in a a peculiar place in Proverbs 31. Listen to how the husband, husbands, cultivates his wife in Proverbs 31, 28 and 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. He says this. Many women have done excellently, but you... 
surpass them all. So a husband says to his wife, you're the cat's meow. But you know what he's saying here? He's saying what Adam said to Eve. When Adam serenaded Eve, it doesn't sound real pretty, and at this time of year I usually bring it up around Valentine's Day, uh, Adam comes up with this really like roses are red, violets are blue, generic poem, and in Hebrew it sounds a little better than English, but Adam, when he sees Eve strolling across the meadow towards him, he says this, This at last is bone of my bones. Wow. Her heart is twitterpated at that. And flesh of my flesh, he is, she is really falling for him now. And she shall be called, he gives her a name, woman, because he, he was, she was taken out of man. Do you know what he's doing there? Is he's doing Proverbs 31, 28, and 29. He's saying, many women have done excellently, but you surpassed them all. Well, she's the only one. I choose you, be mine, he's saying, but she's the only one, but... I think we're catching here a similar theme that a godly man allows and praises his wife to the point that she feels confident to flourish. Proverbs 31, 28 and 29. What is he doing? He's cultivating life in her. But secondly, we see that women are worthy Women are worthy. There's so much about women in this passage. There's uh, about there's a type of women that are full of grace and women that are disgraceful all throughout the book of Proverbs. But I'd like for us to recognize that that women, the, the uh, instruction given about women actually closes this book. And specifically even con- it contains almost an entire chapter to women, specifically to wives. But this woman described in Proverbs 31 is, is, is known to be a woman of strength. And by the way, I believe that much of Proverbs 31 describes a woman, not merely a wife. Describes something that can be typical or, or should be typical of a woman created by God who, who fears the Lord. You see, what has been given to her at the end of this book is not, oh, pray, you know, we're going to praise you because you love your husband so much. No, what's given at the end is because you firstly are a woman of God. You're a woman who fears God greatly, notwithstanding whether you're married or not, even though taking care of children, and of course is implicit in the marriage bonds here. But all throughout the Proverbs 31 is a, is a description of a woman who fears God. That's why she's this type of woman. It isn't children who have made her a woman like this. And it isn't marriage either. She's a woman who fears the Lord. That's why she's being praised all through 31. And so she's, made, she's worthy. She shows herself worthy. And the last verse of, this, of the whole book says, Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. She's made worthy. She shows herself worthy because of her works. What she puts her hands to also seems cultivating as well. We also then notice that there's, so there's men and women, there's children. We recognize that children are dedicated. You say, my children aren't dedicated. Well, let's look at what this means. And 
Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's a fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments, is honor your father and mother in Exodus 20, verse 12. And in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child, the word train means to dedicate. You say, well, I would like to have the effect of dedicating, I would like to have the effect of training on my children, I'm not sure exactly how to do that, but in in this word is this this Hebrew word um, that we get the word train or dedicate is 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 really derived from an Arabic word. I'm sorry, it's not derived. It's related to an Arabic word that's used of of rubbing the palate of a newborn child with a date mixture to make this infant pucker, so that this this child will suck. A child is having a hard time nursing and you put this in its mouth, just a little bit of this date is sour and sweet and this child instinctively then wants something. This is the word train. Practically speaking, make your children want something. Help them to want something. Create an appetite in them in every way that you can instigate with them, make them pucker for the source of truth. Dedicate them, train them, accustom the child to the taste and motivate them to take it in of the wisdom of God. The way in which we can genuinely do this in the hearts of our children is to, to live in, as authentically as we can in front of them, even as a righteous man who falls. Show them the fall. Show them the rising up again, too. Now, you have a heart-to-heart with a child and you say, you know, I was there with you. I, I did that very same thing when I was so and such and such years old, or I do that same thing today. Well, sure, so, show them your failure But can you show them the hope of the rising up again that you as a righteous person have experienced? Show them how to how to rise up again. Don't pretend like you never failed. They can detect hypocrites very easily. Francis Schaeffer, who I believe is a very a very gifted um, theologian and speaker to the point of a Christ centered life, especially in our our, our culture of crisis, even in the church, says this. One of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is to ask them to be conservative. Christianity today is not conservative, but revolutionary. To be conservative today is to miss the whole point, for conservatism means standing in the flow of the status quo. He continues on, he says, we must teach the young to be revolutionaries revolutionaries against the status quo. And what Francis Schaeffer is driving at here is, is don't show our, your children how to, how to live in Christianity. Show them Jesus Christ. Don't even show them something near Christianity if that's where you think conservative, conservatism, politically or social agenda even relates to if you think that's near Christianity. No, show them the hope of Jesus Christ. That's far more revolutionary. And by the way, transformational. 
than any socio-political agenda we can drive into the hearts of our children. Show them how to be in Jesus Christ. For we know, according to Proverbs 22.15, in them is bound, in the heart of the child is, is bound folly. And the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And folly means, according to the book of Proverbs, means a willful refusal to make moral choices, sort of an indifference about what's right and therefore then living in what's wrong. But in training and dedicating and giving our children an appetite, we are following after the pattern of what God has always been doing in young people's hearts. I want to remind you that Joshua was Moses' assistant all the way from when he was a young man in Egypt according to Numbers 11.28. That Samuel, from a very young age, uh, into the ministry from, as a boy, was, was, was being shaped to serve the Lord and, and was a sweet and godly prophet. David was anointed as a king, as a young man, according to 1 Samuel 16. And, and Daniel, as a young man, was taken from his home and lived righteously in the palaces of a wicked king named Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 1. You see, God desires that our children know Jesus now. We aren't to wait and say, well, we're going to let them make their own choice and what they want to believe in down the road. That's not what God's wisdom is given to us in Proverbs. God says, make them pucker now. Wet their appetite now. Show them Jesus now. Our children have immaturity in their heart, but they also, listen, but they also can have the greatness of Jesus Christ in their heart. Was it not our Savior who rebuked the disciples sternly and said, Suffer not. Do not hold back the children. Let them come to me, for this is what people are like when they come to me. The greatest gift that we can give to help our children is to help them know what it is to trust God. In Proverbs fourteen twenty six, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Listen, nervous children have nervous parents. Anxious children have anxious parents. Let them find in your home a refuge in your trust in the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Bring them in. Let them see. Let them see you trusting the Lord. Let them see you praying. Let them hear you praying. Let them, let them see the peace that rules in your heart. Children need to find a refuge somewhere. But sadly, as we look about and children across Westerville, children across our country and around the world, I believe there's no more anxious a generation that's ever lived on the face of this earth than what we see today. Children are fearful. All of the narrative that's going on in the world has just taken their, their little hearts, their inexperienced hearts, and it is rattling them over and over and over again. And if parents won't show our children where to find refuge, nobody will. Nobody will. Because listen, 
Nobody out there in the world is saying, take refuge in this. Nobody's offering a refuge. The world is delighting in a rattling message, in a rattling sound. And they just bring another rattle and another louder rattle and different intervals of the rattle to our homes, to our children, and they just feast upon that like piranha. Our children must find confidence in God by finding us to be confident in God ourselves. When parents trust, children will. This book begins, Proverbs 1, 8 and 9, Listen to your father and mother. This book begins in the home. And then in Proverbs 31, this book ends in the home. It's obvious that God has the home on his mind. He knows that's where you live. That's why it's on his mind. It's where the real us is. And he wants to meet us right where we are. He wants to meet us right there to rescue us and to rescue our homes. Whoever rules the heart rules the home. Each one of us are sons. We are the children of God and the builders of God. We are called to spread the seed of the gospel, to see new birth, new growth in the kingdom of Christ. We are called to build a family of faith. We can't get away from this mandate that begins with our very own identity of being called sons. Beginning with the fear of the Lord in every context, but firstly in the home. We are to give ourselves to seeking out and obeying the wisdom of God. We're not to take our cue from the world. We've done so and we do so too often. The world knows nothing of the home. Nothing of wisdom. The world knows nothing of building and the world certainly knows nothing of fearing God. And even while they are rewriting what a home looks like, what priorities and what passions a home should have, they are spreading the message of death, not of life. If God doesn't rule your heart, then the world is ruling your home. If God doesn't rule your heart, even in the context of your home, He isn't ruling your home. So what is God's rescue plan for the home in the book of Proverbs? There's many truths of part of his rescue plan, but we'll look at three of them. First of all, don't forget, fear God first. Fear God first. Honor God before you honor anyone else, including yourself. Honor God before you honor your job. Honor God before you honor recreation. Honor God before everything. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Secondly, honor God by loving Him. You say, how then, how is this fear worked out? Honor God by loving Him. Give of yourself to Him to study what God is passionate about, what His glory is about, how He is pleased. Give of yourself unto knowing God. Make Him the study of your soul. Make Him the meditation of your mind. Set Him in front of your eyes. Behold God. And thirdly, not only fear Him by loving Him, but fear Him by obeying Him. You Show your love 
to Him by obeying Him like a son. Say, how am I supposed to obey God? Obey Him like a son. In the context of your relationship with Him, like a son would obey a father, not like an employee, a boss, not like a citizen, a king, but like a son, a father. Show your love for Him like a son, obeying Him. Obey what God says. Watch His eye to see where where to go. Fill God's ears. Fill your Father's ears with the sound of your voice. Listen when He speaks to you in the Word. Draw close to Him like a son does to a father. God's rescue plan for the home begins and ends with putting God first above all else. Putting God first above your singleness. Putting God first above your marriage. Putting God first above your parenting. Putting God first above your dreams. Putting God first above your job. Putting God first above everything else in your life. God loves the home, no matter the size. Whether your home is one person or has ten people in it climbing out the windows, God loves the home. And He knows something about your home. He knows it isn't working well. He knows it's dysfunctional. The fact is that there's really no home on earth that really is not dysfunctional. We're like a work in progress. And he wrote us a book from the context of a severely broken home. Remember? A thousand women in this home. Many children by many moms. He wrote to us this book from that context. He took the broken home of Solomon and eventually he brought us the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He takes broken homes and he redeems them as part of and a reflection of his own home we are destined to do. You see, you may be part of a practical and earthly broken home, but because of Jesus Christ, you are part of a perfect and heavenly home. And that's the reality. The home you have with God is not a where, it's a who. If those in a broken home will hear and heed the wisdom of God, God offers the rescue of grace in Jesus Christ. Your home is an outside the reach of His grace if you turn to Him. God's wisdom is calling to you. Do you hear? It's not like he's saying. God is literally saying to you in the book of Proverbs, Son, are you listening? Let's pray.